Welcome to The Caretakers, a show where we'll talk about what it means to be a caretaker on Earth. Whether we're intentional about it or not, we're all caretakers. We've been entrusted to take care of our family, our friends, our environment, and ourselves. We'll talk about strategies for taking care of yourself, mentally, physically, and spiritually. We'll talk about what it means to take care of others, from your neighbor across the street to the neighbor across the globe. This is going to be a journey of self-discovery and reflection, and we hope you join us as we strive to be the best caretakers we can be. So, Randa is a mother of two children and a pediatric occupational therapist. Randa currently works with children with various needs, sensory, emotional, developmental, and physical needs in schools, and has a private practice where she supports children and their families. Randa is very passionate about the mental health and well-being of children and mothers, and has an online platform dedicated to writing about these topics. Randa is currently in the process of becoming a psychotherapist. So uh, thank you for joining us on the Caretakers podcast. I'm, I'm very excited to have you here. Uh, this was when we were getting started. This was one of the, you were one of the people that I was like, I want to make sure we have on the podcast. So thank you for, for being with us. Thanks for having me. I think the whole idea of the Caretakers being a theme for a podcast is brilliant. So thank you. Bless it, inshallah. Thank you. Uh, I want to start with something because a lot of us have been experiencing a little bit of turmoil, I wouldn't even say a little bit, a lot of turmoil in the past four and a half months or so. And I saw on your page that you shared a poem. And I want to read that poem first and then ask you a question. So the poem is by Ellen Everett. And it says, are you okay? They ask. I respond as quickly as I can so they will not notice the earthquakes in my voice or the tsunamis in my eyes or the drought in my heart. And when I saw that, mm -hmm. I felt like this was speaking directly to me. And so I want to ask you the question, are you okay? Mm -hmm. And you can respond as slowly as you like. So like you mentioned, this poem really hit home. I think it's very relevant. And I don't think we're supposed to be okay with what's, what's, with what's going on. Um, I think that the fact that we're feeling all these emotions is actually a good sign that things are working well mm -hmm. inside of us in terms of our conscience, our compassion for each other. Um, so when I read that poem, that's, that's really how it feels when people ask you, are you okay? It's no, I'm not okay. And I don't think we're supposed to be. And we use that not being okay to do what we can to help our brothers and sisters. Right. And so when you say we're not supposed to be, when I hear that, sometimes I feel like, especially at work, mm -hmm. people ask me this question, yeah. probably, not, well, they don't ask me specifically, are you okay? That's not the word they yeah, use, yeah. but it's always like, how are you? Right. Right. You start right. a meeting and the first thing everybody's like, hey, how's, every, how's everybody doing? Mm -hmm. And there's so many times where I know I'm not doing well. And the response that I give is, oh, I'm great. How are you guys doing? Right. And it's almost like a a deflection of like, I don't want to talk about this right now, mm -hmm. but not talking about it is making me feel worse. Right. And so the times that I have felt comfortable enough with like a colleague or a friend that asks, Hey, how are you? And I'm saying like, you know what? I'm really struggling. Like it's just been very difficult. Yeah. I've felt so much better after that interaction, but it's that there's something about, especially I feel like at work, 
yeah. it's so difficult <laughs> to say, no, I'm not okay. And I, and people feel like they have to solve it. It's like, I don't need you to solve it. I just need you to kind of mm -hmm. listen to what's going on. Yeah. It's like that sense of like this cognitive dissonance where you're supposed to still function as usual, but nothing is as usual. Right. And you're trying to do the things that you need to do, but it's like we're here, but we're mostly there. Like our hearts and minds are there, but we're, we're here physically. And especially the thing about being at work, right? And I, I don't think people always know exactly what to say and I don't expect them to, but I do definitely recall times where you're sitting there and you feel like you're in an alternate universe mm -hmm. almost because this is something that's so deeply impactful for us. And it's hard to sometimes just be able to relate to others and open up. And part of that, you know, when so, exam, for example, if I asked you, how are you? And you just say, I'm good. It's when somebody really looks at you and says, you know, how are you really doing? Mm -hmm. That's when I think we start to feel like we can open up and let that guard down and start to share with people who are trustworthy and people who we feel like we can actually um, open up and, and share comfortably. But you're right. It's after you do that, that you start to feel like I can handle this. I can handle, I can, I can grasp this a little bit tighter. Right. And I noticed that it gets so much easier after you do the first one. Yeah. Yeah. And so the first time that I told my manager, for example, that, hey, things are not really going well for me right now. Yeah. The next time he brought it up. Mm -hmm. And so it takes that weight off of my shoulders a little bit. Yeah. To say, and it's the same thing, I guess, with a friend or something. You say, like, hey, I'm not feeling well. Mm -hmm. The next time it may not be on your shoulders again to bring it up or it's right. easier the second time. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, so I want to go back a little bit to your intro and ask you about what made you so passionate about mental health and the well-being of mothers and children in the first place? So part of, I think it has to do a little bit with my career. Just This is the area that I work in the most. I work with children and most of the time it's their mothers that I'm interacting with. So um, just working with children is it's incredible really I find that that's where I can do I can have the most impact like just to help a child early on in their life in those early years whether it's with their physical development their emotional health their mental health and well-being um, school all of these things that are so important to their development and their growth um, so I developed just a passion that this is this is the area I want to continue to, to be in the spaces I want to be in so I work in different like I go to schools and I work with kids who are struggling um, and part of that is also supporting their parents because if their parents aren't well supported, then anything I recommend for their children might, it might not get implemented and parents are already stressed with a lot of things. So, um, the other piece is when I became a mother, um, about eight and a half years ago, that's when I started to really think about the mental and emotional well-being of mothers. I don't think we talk enough about how difficult of a transition it can be mm -hmm. to to becoming a parent for both mothers and fathers. Um, but I just found for me that the, the adjustment took some time. And that's when I started my page just to talk about how do you cope with the sleep deprivation and adjusting your whole life to a baby that needs you 24 hours a day. And then um, just being able to put my a bit of my writing out there just to see if it helps other moms. And then just with my career, it just kind of spiraled from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can I can definitely resonate with that yeah. so I have a 15 month old mm -hmm. and the past year so I saw you know from pregnancy what my wife was going mm -hmm. through and then after our daughter was born it was sort of 
there's always something, right? Yeah. It's always something that you're 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 dealing with and you're trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. And there's no guidebook. And right. until you've been through it yourself, it's very difficult to explain or describe. And this is as as a dad. Yes. And so as a mom, I'm like completely out of my depth. I have no idea what what's actually happening, right? Yeah, it's it's one of those things because it's this significant physical and emotional experience for the mother bringing mm -hmm. a child into the world and then raising that child is a whole other ball game. So it's just it's it's the lack of um, preparedness sometimes, and I don't think you can properly prepare for this until you're in the thick of it, and they're sending you home from the hospital with this baby, and they say, "Okay, you're on your own." So I feel like we just don't talk enough about this transition and how hard it can be. And I think there's sometimes a bit of a stigma attached to saying, I'm really struggling with this because we don't want to feel like we're we're not being good parents or everyone else has it figured out except for us. Like, how do all the other babies sleep and how do all the other babies <laughs> eat? Right. Sleep is a big thing. I know it comes up a lot in my work, too. And, and in my personal life, just my kids didn't sleep for like two years. And I just you, you just feel that sleep deprivation and you're like, what's. Is it just my kids? Is it just me? Like, am right. I the problem? But the more you talk to people and you open up, you start to find out that, you know, everyone struggles with these things. Mm -hmm. So with that, I mean, we, we've kind of talked a little bit about both topics that I want to talk about with you today. Mm -hmm. um, but I just want to give some context uh, for some mm -hmm. of the things that we talked about. So we yeah. mentioned it's been a difficult time yeah. um, for us and Part of the reason for that, I think largely, uh, is what's happening in Gaza. Yeah. And you and I are both Palestinian. We've gone out and talked to people together about you know what's going on in Palestine. But just for people who are listening to this and don't have as much context or, you know, we're recording this now in early February. Um, there's been quite a few updates. And so I just want to give the listeners a little bit of context mm -hmm. before we move on to the next uh, section. So... Um, the, the following statements are from the submission that South Africa made to the International Court of Justice. And so according to that, um, over 27,000 people have been killed in Gaza, with over 70% being women and children. 70,000 have been injured, uh, many of those reporting burns and amputations, specifically for mothers. Young mothers are unable to breastfeed due to lack of proper nutrition and are using contaminated water to prepare baby formula when they find it. Premature births are reportedly increased by 25 to 30% while cases of placenta abruption have more than doubled. Um, Palestinian mothers have been killed in maternity hospitals and the stats are showing that two mothers are estimated to be killed every hour in, in Gaza. For the children, um, in September 2023, Save the Children had already declared 2023 as the deadliest year for Palestinian children in the West Bank mm. since 2005. The estimates now are showing that 115 children are killed in Gaza every day. More Palestinian children were killed in the first three weeks in Gaza following October 7th to the, than the total number of children killed each year across the world's conflict zone since 2009. And following a recent visit, the UNICEF spokesperson um, left Gaza and said 
his conclusion was that this is a war on children. So we talked a little bit about, you know, the challenges of being a mother, um, the challenges even of being a child and trying to figure things out. That's in the best case scenario, right? Like I'm assuming that a lot of the parents and children that you work with, um, kind of like us, they live relatively comfortable lives and everything is almost set up for you to succeed, right? Like I remember when my daughter was born, we had access to every gadget in the book Mm -hmm. to help her sleep. We had... um, we never worried about food. We never worried about water. We never worried about any of these things. And as you mentioned, it's still incredibly difficult for every parent. Mm. And so to set the baseline, I want to first talk to you about those challenges that mothers face during pregnancy and in the first year of their child's life. And let's talk about the baseline. So we're not talking about Reza here. We're talking about a normal mother in Canada um, in a relatively safe place and the challenges that, you know, whether it's mental or whether it's physical, what are the challenges that moms are going through? So I think a lot of the challenges center around that adjustment and that transition from, especially when it's your first child, right? From having your schedule just around what you wanna do every day and, and, and your passions and your interests. And then you have a child who your whole life revolves around after that. So I think that's one of the main um, difficulties that I hear from a lot of mothers, in addition to um, just sometimes a lack of support. So you know how they say it takes a village to raise a child. And I don't think we necessarily um, have that anymore in terms of that there's always a family member to help or to take the kids or so the mom can rest or all of these things. And mothers find themselves kind of um, in the situation where they're they're, they're trying to recover from a significant experience physically and, and emotionally. And sometimes there's all kinds of complications they're dealing with while also taking care of a child 24 hours a day. And if there isn't that support um, or information that, that they need, that it just becomes so much harder. So um, thankfully here um, in where we live in such a privileged area of the world, there's, there's no shortage of resources. Um, I remember going to all the different like um, mom and baby classes and clinics and they could just check the baby and the weight and how they're eating and all of these things and it was just so reassuring as a mom to have that to know that you're on the right track and your baby's doing okay and you're you're doing okay um, to have other moms that you can talk to play groups we have we had so many different things at, mm-hmm. at my time when I was a first-time mom and I just think yeah of mothers everywhere else that are dealing with these same issues but on a much a much different level in a much different context, different environment without anywhere near the, the amount of resources that we have here. Mm-hmm. Um, the sleep deprivation that we talked about, right? Like that, when you think about it here in our context, that seems like such a trivial thing when you look at places like Gaza. You're like, I'm, it's just y- y- that perpetual exhaustion you feel from not sleeping and not being able to get your baby to sleep or, or feeding issues or challenges. And then the lack of support that sometimes we feel here then you think about what mothers are experiencing elsewhere and it puts things in, in perspective, mm-hmm. not to invalidate your own struggles, but to also just kind of helps you understand um, and, and it helps fuel us to work towards supporting and advocating for mothers over there. Right. Yeah, and I, I remember like the, the one thing that I don't think 
as a dad, I say weren't prepared for afterwards is we think, I don't know why we think this, but dads think in very weird ways and <laughs> men in general yeah. think in weird ways. <laughs> for some reason in my mind, I thought like once the baby's born, everything's going to be fine mm-hmm. in terms of like my wife. Right. Right. Like I knew that we had to deal with the baby, but I thought in my mind, for some reason, never really having experienced this. And I'm the youngest in my family as well. Okay. So I never had like my mom, for example, give birth to like a, ch- right. a younger a younger sibling. And so for me, I was thinking not not like if you asked me this question, I wouldn't have said that. But implicitly, I was kind right. of thinking that. Okay, right now she's going through, you know, there's these hormones and and all these difficulties during pregnancy. And then hopefully once the baby's born, then it's like we focus on the baby. And I really underestimated how just how difficult it is afterwards for the mother, whether it's, you know, physically, how difficult it is in the first place, just Mm -hmm. to recover from that. And then emotionally where you have, you know, here we like we, we were in the hospital after my daughter was born and they were telling us about um baby blues and yeah. and um i think it's called shaken baby syndrome yeah. or something like that yeah about how mm-hmm. sometimes it gets so you're just so frustrated you don't know what's going on right. with your child and you're so sleeping you're so you know sleep deprived and you're so exhausted that people will shake their babies and it right. can actually do a lot of physical harm to them mm-hmm. and so my wife and i were talking about this and we were like that was the instructions that we were given and we were going home to like a silent house right mm-hmm. where the only sound that we could hear was probably our baby crying right and so if you take that same idea and you apply it to now you are not home mm-hmm. you're in the street somewhere bombing everywhere drones flying over your head 24 7 even when the when the bombs aren't dropping and just trying to think about the fact like don't shake your baby mm-hmm. how how it seems so it seems like like why are we talking about this with everything else going on but it's still so important for mothers to understand right because they're trying to keep their children safe from everything at that, that point and so kind of transitions into those same challenges that we talked about for mothers in mm-hmm. Canada and any other sort of developed place where things are, are relatively easy now. And I do use that term easy, yeah, by the yeah, way. Yeah, like, no, you know what I mean? mean? I don't want it to yeah. discredit. Yeah, 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 no, I know what you I mean. don't want people coming for me saying Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, how are those challenges now amplified for moms in Gaza? I mean, I mentioned some of those things about being able to breastfeed and yeah, formula. Yeah. and There's this part of it is just this entire... Um, concept of safety and security that you need in order and stability that you need in order to, to to raise a child to take care of a child to take care of yourself and your family and that's completely missing right now there's there's no stability so everything else just takes a back seat like safety and security that's our number one most basic human need and mm-hmm. if that's not there all this other stuff about parenting it just becomes almost irrelevant Right. And as a parent, your your number one job is to ensure that your child has their basic needs met, that they're that they're clothed, they're fed, they're safe, they're loved, they're secure. And if, like you said, they're in a context in an, in an environment where there is nowhere that's safe and you feel like the sense of 
um, helplessness that you can't keep your children safe. You don't know where it's safe. Do they sleep next to you? Do they sleep in different areas of the house? Like I, as we hear, like parents don't know, should they put them all in one room together? Should they sleep in different rooms? Like these are decisions that parents have to make that we don't even have to, it doesn't even occur to us, right? So whenever I think about this, it's, yeah, it's, it's completely heart-wrenching that they don't have the ability to even think about the other aspects of parenting and raising a child that we um, are so consumed with here, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it gives you that sense of gratitude that I, I, I'm grateful that I, I have these things to worry about here, but I don't have to worry about the basic essential elements of what we need as human beings to survive and thrive and to take care of one another. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely amplified um, the food shortage or the blockade, um, the water, uh, lack of clean drinking water. Um, the other aspect of it is just that lack of social support, right? Um, I think there in those countries, they typically have more of that village, um, like people that can help you. Like I think fa- whole families live together in one area. So there's always somebody to help you take care of your child. Um, but now obviously everyone's in survival mode and families are displaced and they're disconnected and they're separated. Um, like I know for my family, each each family member's in a different spot and sometimes they can't even get a hold of each other. And the worry and the anxiety of losing losing family members, in addition to the grief of already losing family members, and how I can't even imagine being a mom who's dealing with all of this grief and this loss, while also trying to parent a child who is who is experiencing trauma at a level we we can't comprehend. Right, I mean, you talked about support systems. I I got I got a voice note myself um, from one of my cousins in Gaza. And she mentioned that, you know, she's they're in they're in the street basically mm-hmm. looking for a place to shelter. And it was almost casual in the in the voice note that she mentioned that Israeli forces had taken her husband. And it was like imagine being in that situation and you've got she's got multiple kids being on your own in that case, like not even having, look, forget extended family, right. not even having your partner there to help you get through it. And just that being an accepted reality yeah. was just so mind blowing to me. Um, and and there's other things like there's, there's, it goes beyond, it goes beyond just women. I mean, even, uh, sorry, it goes beyond uh, mothers. Yeah. Like I, I saw, um, I don't know if you, you've seen uh, Bisan on, mm-hmm. uh, she, she posts a lot of Instagram yeah, yeah. and she was just talking about the lack of like sanitary products yeah. for women. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it, there's so many things that people, and this is what, what's partly infuriating about this is that what's, what's happening is limited to um, a footnote. And what I mean by that is you look at the headline and it says, whatever, clashes in in Gaza, 70,000 people injured. And all of these layers and layers and layers of things are just lost completely in the reporting. And, you know, as somebody who has direct contact with people there and you know, you understand what's going on and you see on Instagram what's going on. It's so hard to read that and, and feel like, I don't know if fulfilled is the right word, but feel like it's, 
uh, I don't know what the right word is like for that it. That it captures really what's happening. Yes. Right? Yeah. Like yeah. It's just it's missing the mark. Right. And and I and I can't imagine that if somebody like how could somebody know, mm-hmm. right? If they're not following what's going on and online, and or they don't know somebody who knows somebody there, yeah. they look at that headline and they're you reduce you reduce Palestinian casualties to numbers a lot of time. We don't get our stories told, right? We don't get the names, we don't get the pictures of of what's going on, and we'll talk a little bit more about the experience of of people here. Yeah. Um, but I did want to move to um, children. So we talked about mothers, and you know, part of the work that you do is dealing with um, children. And let's let's again establish a baseline of what are kids going through um, in a relatively stable environment here. So the majority of the challenges are usually around um, kind of that a bit of that disconnect sometimes between the expectations of the adults around them and where they are developmentally or in, this, or in terms of their skills. So um, just working with children who have emotional regulation difficulties, which result in behavioral difficulties at school and at home, um, learning difficulties, right? There, There's usually some underlying need or, or handwriting or fine motor or visual motor need that's underlying some of their academic struggles that we we uncover um, so it's usually around those like getting along with peers that social aspect making friends um, getting along with teachers parents so there's usually a reason I usually look at behavior as communication like what's their behavior communicating to us there's usually a need there they're, they're either feeling lonely or disconnected or the demands of the task are too um, too much for their skill level and we have to adapt things so those are the main things that um, I find kids are, are, are dealing with here um, bullying, teasing, those kinds of things. So, yeah, it's when you think about it in context, which I know we'll get to, it's um, it's a whole different um, issue that we're right. looking at for Gaza and other war-torn countries. And so for parents or people like yourself, um, what kind of coping method, method, what kind of coping mechanisms do you have for children that are experiencing these issues? So it's more of... A holistic approach that we take and basically we have to get all the adults the caregivers the teachers and parents on board with with the same type of support plan for them so I work actually lately in the last couple of years the majority of my work has been um, related to mental health like children who experience a lot of anxiety um, depression and it's impacting their functioning at school and at home um, and their quality of life so coping mechanisms we we usually try to identify what's fueling the anxiety there's usually a lot of thoughts there a lot of worries um, and we work through those thoughts and we I do a lot of play therapy so a lot of the kids that are under 10 um, you can't really sit them down and say, okay, talk to me about your thoughts. Right. So I do I do it through play, and you can usually find a lot of um, the things that they're struggling with come out through their play. They play it out. That's, that's usually how children process things, or they draw it out, um, and then they're a lot more open to, to sharing about it. So um, it's more of having a safe person, like a therapist, um, being able to observe and witness their what comes out of them in terms of their expression, um, and intervening and helping them process and cope with their challenges and then um, helping them identify kind of why am I so anxious? Why does this feel so hard for me? And then empowering them with the tools to to cope with it. Right. And how important is it that you have that corrective measure? Is corrective measure the right word? For what? 
for the mm-hmm. coping mechanisms and that kind of thing, or just like having that intervention, yeah. I guess maybe yeah, is the right yeah, word. Yeah. And how important is that um, when you're still a child? It's crucial. <laughs> right. That's why I'm always um, commending parents or teachers for bringing up these concerns. It usually takes an adult who's highly attuned to the children around them, like a, either a parent or a teacher, to notice that child's struggling. Um, they're, they're not a bad child because they're misbehaving. There's, there's a need there and we need to figure that out. Otherwise that child just ends up sitting in the principal's office all day or being kicked out of class or getting in trouble. And we haven't really figured out, but why are they having a hard time? Usually what I found is when we figure that piece out and the child feels supported and like we're all on their team, things do get much better for them. And then they're not seen as that troublemaker or that kid mm-hmm. who just isn't doing well in math. Well, why aren't they doing well in math? Let's figure this out. Um, so it's very important to notice it early on before that child kind of develops this identity about themselves that I'm just I'm just not a good kid or there's mm-hmm. something wrong with me or everyone around me is telling me there's something wrong or I keep getting in trouble. So early intervention is always the best. Right, right. And I think you know where we're going now. So. Yeah. <laughs> How are these same cha- challenges now amplified for, for kids in Gaza? So it's, it's definitely, um, when you look at it from, the, again, the safety and security standpoint, for children who are developing and they're in these critical um, stages of development for their brain, the number one thing they need is a, is a stable environment, yeah. security and safety because what happens is the brain is now directing all the resources it would have used for learning and growth and development to survival. So they're missing out on these critical windows of development that they would have needed all those resources to go towards learning and playing and, and learning about the world and their, and their environment and making you know those social relationships that are so fundamental to their growth. And to be honest, I worry about this a lot. I, I think about this often, the impact of an entire generation of children who are missing out on the ability to develop in a healthy manner, how the, long, how the long-term impacts of this are going to affect them and affect you know, their community and their society. And the thing with um, children's needs is that if they're not getting that stability and that security and that environment that's conducive to their well-being, then there will be significant long-term impacts. Like that's not a shock or a surprise. That's just... The, the natural progression of right. having that early um, experience in their life. So the challenges there are going to look significantly different. Um, I was reading a study done by Save the Children, and it showed that a lot of these children um, are struggling not just from a mental health, like feeling depressed or anxious. There's actual um, like self-harming behaviors. They don't know how to cope. There's a lot of suicidal ideation that they found from their sample size, um, aggressive behaviors that start to form because they're not, they, all they've seen or the majority of what they've seen and experienced has a lot of violence attached to it. And for these children who've lost family members and have, have lived in an environment where there's this ongoing oppression, this ongoing experience of trauma, we have to see how they are going to develop very, very significant behavioral challenges and emotional regulation challenges as a result. So there's there's definitely an exacerbation of all of these issues. And I think if we're referring to the same Save the Children study, yeah. I have some of the stats sure. here. You want to share? The thing that blew me away about that study, they put it out in 2022. It's the same one then, the one I read. So it's 2020. So this is before 
anything that we're talking about in 2023. Yeah. And we know that this has been on a scale that hasn't really ever been seen before in terms of an impact on children. And so some of those stats here, 80% of children experienced higher levels of emotional distress. Demonstrated through bedwetting, 79%. Reactive mutism, uh, 59%. And engaging in self-harm, 60%. And suicidal thoughts, 55%. And so half of the population of children, which is a million of them, are having suicidal thoughts at, again, 55%. Mm-hmm. And that's in 2022. Yeah. And so when the UNICEF spokesperson visits Gaza and comes back and says, this is a war on children, you have to remember that those stats are even before right. this current attack on Gaza. So. I want to ask you about um, something in particular. So post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you've, you know about this as well, but I've read something that children in Gaza don't get PTSD. They get TSD because there is no post. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, I've been following the work of Dr. Jess Ghanam. He's been studying um, the impact of war on children from various war-torn countries, like in Iraq and and different places. And what they found in the research was that children from, uh, like Palestinian children, have a very unique experience and presentation of trauma. So post-traumatic stress disorder, like you said, there has to be um, a period of time where that experience that's leading to the trauma experience has ended or has stopped. There has to be a period of time where it's not no longer happening. And then it's the symptoms that come after that, right? The nightmares, the flashbacks, the difficulty coping and functioning in your daily life, all those symptoms that accompany um, post-traumatic stress disorder. For Palestinian children, they don't have that experience of not having ongoing things happening that are contributing to this trauma. And even in between, so let's say, you know, over the last couple of decades, there's been at least five or six significant like militarized incursions of Gaza. That's just Gaza, not even talking about the West Bank and Jerusalem. So even in between those significant incursions, there's still this ongoing living under occupation and living under a blockade and the imminent risk of harm. Like at any point, a war could break out. Like there's just, there's no stability. So they don't even have the opportunity to experience a period of that relief where we're safe, things are okay, there isn't going to be a war tomorrow that breaks out or I'm not going to lose my parents imminently in the next you know, few days. They, they don't have that period of time where the brain can actually start to heal from the trauma. So that's why it's more of an ongoing, continuous experience of trauma for children. And that's where I, I worry so much. I just, I, the, the, the long-term mental health impacts are... We, we can't even begin to understand what they're going to look like. And again, new, uh, a new acronym being created mm-hmm. um, during this latest uh, assault on Gaza. Uh, WCNSF stands for Wounded Child, No Surviving Family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Honestly, it's it's a... It's an absolutely heart-shattering term that, as far as I understood, was only developed in hospitals in Gaza. I could be wrong, but an acronym like that should just make us all like completely shudder. Like it's 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 mortifying, 
And as a parent and as a mother, it hits so deeply because I think that's one of our worst fears as parents that we won't be around to take care of our children. We won't, one day something will happen and we won't um, be able to, to, to see them grow and to raise them and who's going to look after them. So I think this has definitely um, hit very, very hard that this is the reality that there's children coming in to the hospital or being brought in and the doctors are saying, we don't know who to send them home with. There, there's either no extended family or no one has shown up to pick them up. And that's an alarming reality that I don't think it's spoken about enough in the media. Right. And that's, and that's, this is not a one-off no, case, no. right? They wouldn't be creating acronyms for mm. one or two yeah. kids. I read in a previous uh, earlier news article, 118, 120, but that was weeks ago, right? Right. The numbers of everything are just increasing on a on an exponential level. I want to ask you specifically as as an occupational therapist, and when we talked about what that means to be an occupational therapist, you told me that it's something it's someone who helps people do something that they find meaningful again mm -hmm. and figuring out ways to do that. One of the horrifying things that we've seen are amputations being done on children. Um, especially amputations being done on children without any anesthetic because of the, the blockade on any medical supplies. And this is as per the, the filing from South Africa. So these numbers are outdated. Mm -hmm. Over a thousand children have lost one or both of their legs. My question to you is what kind of support are they going to need from a physical standpoint? And of course, from a mental standpoint mm -hmm. as well, to do the things that they find meaningful? There's going to need to, to be a lot of assistive equipment that they're going to need, like prosthetics, walkers, wheelchairs, um, so many assistive devices that will be crucial in terms of them being able to engage in their environments and in their occupations again, right? So they're even just to play or to hold a pencil. Or So I, I, I work with children here who, um, on a much lesser scale, obviously, I don't, I don't really deal with a lot of children who've had um, amputated limbs, but in terms of other physical disabilities, being able to kind of teach them how to hold a pencil and write with it or how to even just play, how to climb playground equipment, do the things that will that are needed in their everyday life. Um, putting on their clothes, things like that, feeding, eating. So it's going to take a lot of therapy, a lot of rehabilitation for them to, um, and it's very, it's a very, very painful, honestly, thing to talk about even just for them to be given or to have access to these pieces of equipment. It's actually something I think about a lot that I'm, I'm hoping after this is done that, um, you know, just humanitarian organizations were able to kind of help fund these types of assistive devices for them to be able to take them to these children. Otherwise, um, you can imagine how hard it's to not be able to get up and play with your friends or to not be able to engage with your environment or eventually one day, inshallah, when things are better and the infrastructure is back to go to school and to be able to engage in the curriculum and, and their school activities. So um, obviously this is all going to need a, a safe environment, stability back again and um, caregivers that are able to to implement these things so there's a lot of layers to this um, that are going to be needed first and um, it's it's a long-term long-term recovery process and the way I see it is I think this is going to need a global effort of therapists and healthcare workers to go and help them rebuild not just their their cities and infrastructure but their bodies their their psyches their well-being so um, it's definitely going to take a long time but 
um, it's uh, it's definitely something that's going to need a lot of thought and, and effort in all hands on deck kind of situation. Right. And it's necessary. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like yeah. that that's the part that I think is is often lost is that these are kids just like my daughter or your kids. They're kids, right? Yeah. And and we have, I would say, a duty and a responsibility to make sure that they have these things available to them. Yeah. Whether it is the devices that you're talking about, the medical devices that are going to allow them to do the things they want to do. Um, and regardless of how difficult it is, we have a responsibility, I think, as caretakers and mm -hmm. as people who feel like we have a responsibility to others in this world, yeah. that we have to not only try to stop this from happening to them mm -hmm. ever again and stop it in the first place, and then make sure they have everything they need to, like you said, rebuild. I think it's beautiful to rebuild both sort of physically and, and emotionally as well. Yeah. Now, the impact on Gaza, I think, has been well documented as it should be, and it should be the focus. Yeah. But there is also an impact on people like you and I in the diaspora mm -hmm. who are watching what's happening and maybe for the first time, even if these are people who are not Palestinian or haven't been following what's going on, for the first time experiencing all these emotions. And so myself, I would consider myself to, some, to be somebody that has a pretty good schedule, I, I, regular sleep schedule, I exercise on a regular basis, all of those things that you're supposed to do to have, you know, I would say strong mental health barriers. Right. I was in shambles yeah. for a long time i wasn't sleeping well when i was sleeping i had very hard very difficult dreams um i found myself going from somebody that was very focused very motivated to couldn't focus at work couldn't focus when i'm with my family no motivation to go to the gym anymore mm -hmm not really motivated to see my friends. And I can only imagine that somebody, and again, I had a very stable situation. And so I can only imagine that somebody didn't have that and what they experienced themselves as they were watching what's going on. It's, it, I'm sure it was very, very difficult. And I want you to talk a little bit, if you can, about maybe what you experienced, and then also what you've been hearing from other people as well, what they've experienced in the last 120 days. Yeah, I, I can definitely relate to how you were feeling. Um, I think it hits different people in different ways. And I've what, what I have been hearing is a lot of people are struggling emotionally, mentally, a lot of helplessness, a lot of um, vicarious trauma or secondary trauma, right? Which is us witnessing this from our phones. Um, it's the most documented genocide, you know, in, in history, right? And we're seeing it from our phones, we're trying to process, we're trying to make sense of it. But the way the brain works is that sometimes when you're witnessing a trauma, it's, it's almost as debilitating as experiencing it. So we're walking around all the time, watching these horrific images and videos, um, trying to stay informed 
and then not always having the coping tools to, okay, what do we do after we put our phones away and now we need to tend to our children or now we need to walk into this work meeting or we have to do all the things we have to do every day, but our brains are still like, hey, are you there? Like, are you under threat? And we're responding that way or we're having physiological symptoms, heart racing, muscle tension, um, all kinds of things that are happening inside of us because we're not psychologically primed to witness this much destruction in such a short period of time, all day long, every day, with no end in sight to people that you relate to on such a deep level. It's it's very, very psychologically devastating. Um, and if you don't have the proper tools in place, it can become a psychological catastrophe almost in our brains and in our well-being because we're just, we don't know how to cope with it. So a lot of people, I think, are are going about their days with the secondary trauma experience without really knowing that they're having it. We just kind of, we, we're irritable, we're not sleeping well, we're, we're not functioning, we're not focusing. We don't realize that that's actually a symptom of, of having this trauma. So um, recognizing it is definitely the first step. But I think just in general, knowing, um, kind of knowing that balance of how informed on a daily basis am I and is there a way for me to balance staying informed while also being able to continue to function properly and appropriately here? Um, so I've definitely I, I felt a lot of the same things you felt. And I think the, the other thing a lot of people have been feeling, including myself, is survivor's guilt. So with our family members, a lot of a lot of our family members are, are in Gaza. I have half my family in Syria and half in Gaza. So two very... Um, difficult places and then I, I I feel like I'm one of the only ones in my extended family that you know my dad and mom made the decision years ago decades ago to come here and because of that I'm I'm here with you know with the blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that I'm here and I'm not there and then when I hear from them and about the struggles they're going through and then I look around at my life here it's it's just a very very difficult feeling that we get that these feelings of guilt that show up for us so I think those have been some of the most common emotions that have been coming up Right. And with, I mean, I've, the survivor's guilt, I think, is is one of the things I've struggled with probably the most. Mm -hmm. And I would say that in a way, in a way, it's a, I, I, I struggle to say it's a good thing. Yeah, I know what it's, you mean. It's motivating. Mm -hmm. It's driven me to do things that maybe otherwise I wouldn't have done yeah. in yeah. terms of advocating for people and speaking up because I feel like they were put in that position and I've been put in a very different position. Yeah. And because of that, I have a responsibility and a duty to do everything I can to help alleviate their situation. Right. I imagine that if I didn't have that, it would feel worse. Yeah. The survivor's guilt would hit me harder. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Absolutely. It's, it's always what you make of the emotion, right? So, And guilt is an incredibly important social um, like emotion that maintains our social connections with each other, right? Like if you feel guilty that you haven't seen this person in a while, you're going to call them or message right. them. So it's not always a bad thing. Guilt isn't always um, a bad thing. If it turns into shame, it can kind of lead to negative outcomes. But you're right. It's that sense of um, I'm here, like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put me here. And that's there's a purpose and there's a wisdom for that. And so I need to do whatever I can from the privilege that I have here and the blessings that I have here to do what I can for them over there. Um, and so I was definitely reframing that guilt to what, like, this is, this is what I've, I've been dealt, like, this is where I am in life and what can I do and use that in a purposeful way to help over there. That's definitely the best, I think, way to deal with that survivor's guilt rather than continue to dwell on it. 
that's not going to really help in any situation, right. but to figure out how to reframe it in a way that um, it's more of a catalyst towards doing good for wh what they need us to do for them. Right. One of the things that you wrote about um, was disenfranchised grief. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? So disenfranchised grief is um, a grief or a loss that's not um, acknowledged by others or publicly supported. Um, so you're feeling all these feelings of grief and nobody around you really seems to, to, to acknowledge or recognize or really care. Um, or you might even feel like you're not allowed to grieve publicly. You have to kind of keep it in, keep it to yourself. Um, so I actually just learned about it um, in a course. And when the teacher was talking about it, I, I was like, yeah, that, that's exactly, yes, that. Okay. <laughs> that's what we've been all feeling. Um, this concept of over the years, like there's, like I said, there's been no shortage of all these atrocities that have happened in our homeland and in, and in our countries, Muslim countries around the world, that you feel this immense sense of grief and you don't know what to do with it sometimes because the people around you in your workplaces or in, in, in your school or your settings don't don't get it they just don't really see what's happening um i remember walk in 2021 in the in the previous um significant incursion of Gaza. i remember going into work the one day and everyone was talking about the bachelor and i'm like this is not and not 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 in a, um, i don't mean this in a condescending way like it's people are interested in things and they can talk about them but i just felt like i sat there and i was you know just in a different realm like I just I couldn't um even engage not that I watched that show but I couldn't even engage with them in any way and I just kind of carried that grief with me and I just kind of carried it with me for that whole uh, however long this that whole situation lasted and I just kept it inside and lately in my current job um I told a few people at work and they couldn't believe it they're like, we've never heard of this. And they went and started reading up on it. And they came to me the next day. They said, we went down this rabbit hole of reading about Palestine. And they're like, we are so sorry. Um, we never knew something like this was happening in, in our reality right now. And we are mortified at what we read. And that sense of being seen and heard and validated in your grief, it, it felt it felt very different than other experiences where nobody really seems to understand um, that you are carrying this huge weight as you go about your day that other people don't necessarily have. Why is it important for people to recognize it? Because I, I feel this yeah. totally same way, yeah. but I was trying to think about why is it, why do I need that? Why do I need somebody to acknowledge that, yes, mm -hmm. you are in, you are grieving mm -hmm. and yes, we see your pain and we see your struggle. Why is that important for us? So it comes back to this concept of validation, right? That we, we're social beings. So we need, we sometimes require that validation of our experience in order for us to start to properly heal and recover from it. Otherwise, you just feel lonely and isolated. You might feel like it's wrong, like maybe there's something wrong with me for feeling this grief, and then that just exacerbates the situation more. But when you feel like other people come to you and say, it makes sense that you're struggling. Like, I get it. Like, I see your pain. I hear you. It, it makes sense. That just gives a, it's like a soothing bomb, right? On mm -hmm. on all those feelings. And it helps you being able to be able to move move forward with them a lot more than feeling stuck. Like, why am I the only one that's having such a hard time with this? And that complete lack of validation that happens a lot, whether it's at work or from, you know, our, our, our political situation right now where people don't necessarily acknowledge that this is a problem and this is what needs to happen. So um, it can look very different, um, this disenfranchised grief on so many levels. Right. Like I can give you an example of something a lot of people felt emotional about, mm -hmm. but something that shouldn't really be emotional. 
but it was um, statements from their employers. Yeah. So around mid-October, we started seeing a lot of statements from mm-hmm. employers and a lot of companies were putting out these statements. And when you read a statement that doesn't mention the word Palestine or doesn't mention the word Gaza or doesn't mention, mm-hmm. it, it shouldn't be an emotional experience to read a statement from your, yeah. from your work, yeah. right? Like yeah. it's like, okay, file it in the email. Nobody yeah. cares. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> move on, right? yeah. But it's such, and I, I, I had this experience where I had to, I had to speak to people that I, that I work mm-hmm. with in the multicultural inclusion networks and in some, some of the senior leadership to say, you're completely erasing the experience of so many people when you put out a statement like this. And you have to understand as an employer, as a school board, as any, any organization where you're dealing with a, a vast majority of people or like a group of people, that if you completely erase one group from what is meant to be call it for what it is just like a statement that you have to do you have to say something how it's received is not just a statement that you put out it's received in a very emotional way from the people that you are meant to really take care of especially in a sort of a school setting right and so that was when when i read disenfranchised grief that was one of the things that popped up in my mind that it seems like it should be such a trivial thing that we should just Mm -hmm. you know file away and but it can be so frustrating to, de- to deal with. Very, very impactful. And I think now there's been so much public attention about what's happening in Palestine that we're finally, I think a lot of us, I don't know about you, but I just felt like we're, we're getting a little bit of that, um, people just educating themselves and being informed and being aware and that support, it, it just hits differently. And I think it also fuels us to keep going, mm-hmm. that people are learning so much about it. And as soon as people learn the truth, they usually are very supportive and very empathetic. So um, it's definitely been different this time around. I don't think I've ever experienced such a wide public. Um, obviously, there's still a lot of people that that aren't uh, very supportive, but there's, I think, a lot more than the usual that are a lot more supportive of the Palestinian right. cause now. One of the emotions that I felt and a lot of people that I know felt was betrayal mm-hmm. from people that are otherwise very friendly with you and otherwise very close to you and it's specifically i find for some reason it's specifically around social media that Mm -hmm. we see this it's why hasn't this person posted something or why hasn't this person gone so far as to like one of my stories Mm -hmm. or like one of my posts and it goes back to that validation thing it hurts so much more when it's somebody that maybe you went to school with when you were younger or you were friends with Mm -hmm. or you still are friends with and you maintain relationships with them, but they somehow have this blind spot on this issue. Um, What are your thoughts on that, on the betrayal that people feel? Is that valid? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. We, we, we sometimes expect that this person would, would speak on our behalf, that they would support us in some way. Um, And when they don't, it, definitely leads a lot of leads to a lot of disappointment and it's okay to acknowledge that it's actually healthy to acknowledge that I'm feeling disappointed because of this um and the way I see it is I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing and that person might 
be supportive, just not showing it in the way that they should be, right? We do ask that people, you know, do do show their public support because it has a ripple effect, right? When you like something, then somebody sees that you liked it and then they want to read it. It does have that ripple effect, especially in the social media world where we've seen a lot of the advocacy has come through that, right? It's been it's been like this you know this this thing that just went off and everybody's now talking about it thankfully um so you're always wondering like i wonder why they're not talking about it i wonder why they're not showing their public support but the way i see it is you know what it's it's this one person they might be reading my stuff it might be helping in some way so i'm just going to keep doing it and acknowledge how i feel about their lack of of support and advocacy right. but it's definitely a valid thing I think a lot of people have felt that, um, both from political leaders and from people within their social circle. Right. I wanted to ask you about uh, intergenerational trauma Mm -hmm. or multi-generational trauma. So obviously this didn't start on October 7th. (laughs) Um, My grandparents were born in Yatha and they were removed from their homes um, 75 or so years ago. Do I really get that trauma that they experienced from them? Sorry, I didn't phrase that properly. Is that trauma that they experienced really making its way down to me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is such a fascinating concept and um, the study of epigenetics, which looks at how our environment and our and potential traumas affect our genetics and what we pass down to our offspring. So there's actually a lot of preliminary findings that show um, that what our ancestors and grandparents went through, it does get passed down generation to generation, not necessarily to change the sequence of the DNA of the genetic material, but it does influence or it can influence the expression of the genes, which genes are activated and which genes are not. And it, it does, it can leave a very lasting impact. So our grandparents went through the Nakba, we didn't. But that experience very much lives with inside of us, right? And that's why when you see what's, every time one of these things happen, it reopens a lot of those wounds that are already in there. They're embedded into our makeup, just how we, what was transferred onto us. So, um, and we might very possibly transfer a lot of stuff onto our own children. So it, it's definitely something that's big in the research world right now that we can pass down uh, or get passed down traumas from from earlier um, generations onto us. And I always the way I always thought about it, and I have no scientific background <laughs> whatsoever, was that it was passed down through actions. So if my dad went through something traumatic, then it would affect his behavior, and then through that behavior, I would be gotcha. traumatized in some other way. Is that not how... So it, it definitely can be. So it, there is um, an emotional and behavioral component, but there's also a, the biological component. Like okay. it's, it's actually within, within the genetics that, that gets passed down. So um, it's definitely a lot of that, right? That people learn patterns of behavior from, from their parents and their grandparents. And then sometimes that's why they talk a lot about cycle breaking, right? In the psychology world that, you know, things that are not very um, conducive to a healthy family you can be the one that breaks that cycle, right? If there's been a lot of violence or abuse in families that gets passed down, that you can actually be the one that says, no, like it ends with me. Like I'm not going to interact in this way with my own children. So that's that's one component. But the other component is actually inheriting some of that trauma that they've experienced within our own systems and that mm-hmm. it's, it's very much alive within us. Right. And so the natural next question, I think, mm-hmm. is what about our kids? Mm-hmm. 
how do we talk to them about what's yeah. happening um, in a way that fosters empathy mm-hmm. but doesn't traumatize them if that makes sense yeah yeah no it's it's a good question and i i think we we it's something that's definitely being talked about a lot more now about our children who are seeing us they're witnessing us witness this right and i'm sure you you have experiences like me growing up where al jazeera was like blasted all day long in our <laughs> house and we're watching all these horrific things as children like i'll never forget i can vividly remember um the scene of muhammad adura getting shot like i was very young I remember watching it and it's it, it does something to you and it's supposed to do something to you it's supposed to leave a lasting um impact on you in some way so with the children now i the way i see it is depending on their age, obviously. So my kids are eight and six. So I actually sat them down and I talked to them way back in October, actually on like the very first day I sat them down. I said, look, um, this is happening right now in Gaza. Um, it's being attacked and, you know, we have family there and we're all very worried and they're all our family. I consider all, all the Palestinians our family. So you're going to notice that me and Baba are going to be a little bit more stressed than usual. We're going to be probably on our phones more. I just gave them a heads up. I'm like, just so you understand, we're not ignoring you. We're here for you. Like, if you need anything, just come. Like, we're we're still here to obviously take care of you because they start to feel like they start to act out sometimes, right? Our kids, when they want a connection or attention. So I just sat and I told them, this is the reality. This is what's happening. Um, and I, I, I don't recommend or advise showing them or exposing them to pictures or videos. It's just, I don't see any value of that. Like, if us grown-ups are struggling with the things we're seeing can't i can't even imagine like a six or eight or ten year old even just looking at this and and knowing what to do with it and then now you're stuck dealing with your own response and now your child's who's probably going to be a lot more intense than your response so um i always say just tell them the truth let them know give them a heads up be proactive like we should be more proactive than right. just waiting for them to come to us because they might not even know what to tell us so sitting with them telling them the reality of the situation and then f- helping them find a way to be helpful. I think that has a, a huge protective factor for children to feel like we're not just helplessly watching this unfold. We can do things. We can write letters. We can um, talk to our classmates about it. Like just giving them the tools that there are there is something we can do for them. Um, and reassuring them of their own safety. Because I think a lot of kids then start to think, well, is this going to happen here? Is this going to happen to our family? Um, and to just let them know, like, we're safe, alhamdulillah. And we need to use whatever we have here in terms of privilege and blessings to to help our brothers and sisters. Um, really, I really honed in on the concept of the Ummah being like one body. Mm-hmm. And so, thankfully, I think that was a concept that also helps them develop that empathy and that compassion. And helps them feel like they are very much still involved in this and we can involve them in a healthy way. Right. And, and it, I mean, inadvertently, like we, we don't know what life is going to unfold like for us, right? Like we might go through something really significant here and we have locally as a community, I think, been through a lot of um, challenges. So we might very well pass that on to our children, our response, but it's, it's giving them the tools and the ability to express themselves at home and the emotional safety of how are you feeling? You can come and talk to me about what you're feeling what your questions are, like just building that, establishing that foundation of trust and safety in the home that they can tell us what they're feeling and we'll help them. Right. Yeah, I mean, kids is, especially like you mentioned, depending on their age, yeah. it can yeah. be so difficult. But I love that idea of getting them involved in something so they don't feel that helplessness. Yeah. And I've seen that in action where I've seen parents get their kids to make signs mm-hmm. for protests and that kind yeah. of thing and get them get them thinking i mean even even there was a session that i saw of letter writing 
to your member of parliament mm -hmm. and getting them involved so they feel like they do have a voice and empowering them to use that voice early on is so is so important and, and i can imagine it's very therapeutic for mm. for kids to experience that as well i want to go back to social media a little bit because i'm somebody that my social media usage depends on what i'm doing mm -hmm. and so i can go for a year without touching social media and then when something like this happens i'm on instagram mm -hmm. for god knows how many hours a day i've always set on my phone a 15 minute timer for social mm -hmm. media apps and so after 15 minutes it'll kick me off mm -hmm. That's good. <laughs> and then i'll have to override it to yeah. let me go back on i've had no discipline whatsoever with this well, I won't, sorry, I won't say not whatsoever. There were a few days where I figured it out and I figured out how to be productive. Mm -hmm. But I've just been like spamming through those warnings that you're spending too much time yeah. on social media. So how do we how do we balance? What do you think about um, finding balance that way? And, and it'll look very different for each person, right? Their, their, their capacity. So staying informed is crucial and we can't just unplug and turn it off and say that's it like I'm just I, I just can't do this anymore I can't I can't stay informed because that's doing a disservice to the cause and to the people who are working so hard to bring this news to the world now having said that there also has to be an understanding that we are experiencing through this like I, I mentioned earlier that secondary trauma so we need to find that balance between how often are we on it and what am I going to be doing after this so mm -hmm. walking into your house watching a video of you know something horrific happening and then having to turn it off and tend to your children it's probably not a good idea because you're going you're still going to be responding to what you saw and it's going to make it very hard to show up for your kids and your family the way they need you to you're about to walk into a work meeting you're about to do something important that you need to have a, a high level of focus that's probably not the best time to check it so it's it's about finding the right time to be informed and, and read up on things and watch things without it be being detrimental to what you need to be doing here because it's not going to benefit our brothers and sisters there if we're falling apart here and if we're not able to to do the things we have to do here. So it's staying informed enough to be able to advocate and to do what our brothers and sisters need. Um, obviously not just turning a blind eye and, and saying, I, I this is too much for me. It's saying, if this is too much for me, can't imagine what it's like for them there but mm -hmm. i need to just be wise about when and how long definitely not doing it before we go to sleep because that's just going to set us up for um, not a very good night's uh, sleep and we need our sleep so we can continue to do what we're doing every day so it's just finding that balance and it's, it's good that you seem to have found it um i know it's something i'm still working on right. so work in progress right. for me so what are some of the healthy ways that we can use our empathy to support people in Gaza? So definitely um, finding those healthy outlets for us to be able to contribute, like to basically find where can I make a unique contribution? Where can I be useful? How do I want to show up in the midst of this crisis, right? And to continue to reorient ourselves to that because what happens is we can start to start or develop something called compassion fatigue or right. empathic distress where we are so consumed by the things we're seeing that it, it wears us down to the point where we feel debilitated. So what tends to happen is sometimes people try to dial down the empathy and compassion, but that actually just makes it worse because we're social beings. We have to we have to maintain that social connection with each other. 
and then you're actually harming your your own self because then you're not acting in a way that's congruent with your values as a person. So instead of dialing down the empathy and compassion, we we keep that because that's what's fueling us to keep mm-hmm. going. And we're supposed to have that um, uh, high levels of that for our brothers and sisters, but also learning those very helpful emotional regulation tools and those boundaries like we talked about in terms of our social media use. Um, I think one of the most important aspects of all of this is staying within the community. So I know sometimes we like to withdraw or socially isolate when we're feeling really, really distressed. And I always say, take your time, you know, retreat into your your, your cave or whatever it is and, and take some space, but come back. Don't stay there. We need each other. Like we're wired for connection. And the fact that, alhamdulillah, we have a really um, strong knit community, I think is a significant protective factor for how we're supposed to cope. Um, I think Imam al-Ghazali said we, like, we're like a medicine for one another. So we need each other. We need um, this communal sense of healing. It's really hard to go about it alone. So I always recommend that people come and, and get together. And um, thankfully, all the events that we've had here locally, like the, the demonstrations, the protests, the, the meetings, the, um, the lectures on how to cope, I think all of that is really part and parcel of us being able to cope in a communal sense. And part of our faith that has a built-in system for this communal support, like a lot of the things we do are are done in congregation. So it's kind of like you will get that support in some way, shape, or form, which is so integral to our healing. Um, continuing to focus on our sleep. Like I know a lot of people aren't sleeping well. Um, focusing on what I need to do, like folks, continuing to keep that in mind. What am I supposed to be doing? Reorienting ourselves to our purpose and touching or tapping into our faith alhamdulillah i really honestly i have no idea how we would have coped with this if it weren't for our faith just reminding ourselves of the things that are in the quran that are that are meant to strengthen us and stabilize us right that stability that anchoring i don't know where else i would have gotten that if it weren't for the quran and the stories and the the lessons and the the prophet's life peace be upon him you look at all the things he went through and how now we read about it and we look back in retrospect and we're like, oh, okay, so that's the, tra- the, the, the the way things went. But back then they didn't know that victory was coming and they and they they still did th- their work. They still did their part. And so you look at that and you learn, you derive so many lessons, even about how he coped والسلام, with difficulties. He was very emotionally attuned to his own emotions and to those around him. He was able to give people what they needed in terms of healing, comforting, soothing, um, despite this significant weight that he was carrying. So um, I think it just gives us a lot of lessons that we we need to be together. We need to take care of ourselves mentally, emotionally, and physically. Um, open up, share how you're feeling with someone. Don't keep it in. We tend to do this thing where we suppress our feelings because we don't want to deal with them or we feel like they're going to slow us down. Mm-hmm. All that does is just create all kinds of tension inside of us. And they're going to come out eventually, not in the best way. So get them out early on in a healthy way, either talking about it, writing about it, expressing it in some way, because th- the way I look at it is emotions are like they're messengers. They're coming to you. They're saying something you care about needs to be looked at or paid attention to. So instead of just blocking them away, no, bring them up and start talking about them to others. Right. And I want to close with where people can go to learn more from you. They give such valuable insights that I want people to be able to follow up on this. I, so I have a platform. Um, it's the one I made originally for mothers, like about their mental well-being and how to how to nurture that. And then I switched gears to talking more about children and how to nurture their needs. So I'm on Instagram, um, Mother Care Journeys, my page, um, but it has been more Palestine oriented lately. 
so that's where I do most of my writing. Um, and yeah, I, that's, that's pretty much where you'll find me. Okay. Awesome. Um, this has been great. I think this has been a conversation that I've been wanting to have myself for so long. And just like you said, you have to start talking about things mm -hmm. in order for you to actually heal and be able to move forward. Yeah. I mean, that's the part that that's always in my mind is I need to figure out these things in myself so that I can help other people. Right. Right. And tying back to that idea of being a caretaker, mm -hmm. that I'm a caretaker. I know that I'm a caretaker here for others. And in order to care for others, I have to be able to care for myself. Yeah. And once I'm able to do that, and maybe it's even simultaneous. I don't even want to mm -hmm. say once I do that because yeah. it, then it's, I'm focusing on myself before it's I think by focusing on others and myself at the same time I'll actually be able to provide the care that I that I should be able to yeah, absolutely it's ongoing they're both happening at the same time right well thank you so much this was uh, very therapeutic for me <laughs> I'll say if no other I'm benefit I hope that other people find uh, benefit from it as well um, and if you did then share it with somebody that you care about and uh, until then, take care. Thank you. <laughs>